All right, well, we're going to go ahead and start a, another Wednesday night of class. Um, I'm going to be gone for the next couple weeks, um, starting on Monday. We're going to see Amy's uh, dad, and then my family is getting together in, in Georgia at a timeshare. So I'm not going to get uh, much time to talk about um, the Messiah, the, the birth of Jesus um, from that perspective, which is always one of my favorite parts of uh, teaching around Christmas time. So I wanted to kind of go through some of that with you guys um, tonight. I, don't, I wanted to be very specific because I don't know what Mike has planned. I don't want to step on any toes. But I wanted to do something that maybe, um, maybe we don't discuss very often, maybe we've never even really thought about before, and I'm going to tell you before we start that I have a suggestion tonight, not a gospel, okay? We're definitely going to be giving a gospel when it comes to Jesus Christ, but I'm talking about I have a suggestion, not you have to agree with me, or you're wrong and I'm right, or, or that means I'm wrong and you're right, okay? Um, just a little interesting thing to think about um, pertaining to the birth of Christ. So, the Messiah is born, Emmanuel. God is with us. Matthew chapter 2 is the account we're going to be looking at. Uh, obviously, there's also the account in Luke. Uh, again, if you want to take and get the full picture of the birth of Christ, you need to look at these two and arrange them specifically because they're kind of, the stories are kind of focusing on different things. So it's easy to get the timeline confused if you're not paying attention to uh, the story. But we're going to focus tonight specifically on the wise men. Um, Matthew chapter 2 says this, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, saw this, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So, first thing I want to point out is... Here come wise men. They're coming from the east. They're coming from a place unknown, from an origin unknown. They're coming to God's people because they're in search of the Messiah, the, the, the king that is going to come from the lineage of David, right? They're, they're in search for this. And they know, here's the interesting part, they know that he's supposed to be born now. And there's also the idea of the star, right? They're following a star when they get to uh, Jerusalem, when they get to Israel, all right? And where did that star come from? And why is that star not something that everybody in Israel is looking for? So, but before we get to that, I want to ask you the question. Why is Herod troubled? What kind of risk? To him and his lineage. Risk to him and his lineage. And that's because the scriptures say that Jesus, that we know now, right, the Messiah, would, would be part of a kingdom that would be established and reign for how long? Forever. Forever. So for, 
for Herod, this was a direct threat to his throne. So he's not really ready to worship. The scripture doesn't say he was overjoyed when he heard the news. The scripture doesn't say he was confused on how he missed it. The scripture said he was troubled and he wanted to know where this child was supposed to be born. Right? That's what the scripture says. So verse 5, it says, They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. So here again, I want to point out, here's the king of Israel. And he's got to go to the teachers to understand the scriptures that he really should know. Go ahead. Herod wasn't all Jewish. That's true. He was, he was a mixture. So That's true. being the king was certainly That's definitely true. He was worldly. Can, Steve, can you hear them? Yes. Okay, let's make sure. I definitely can't hear them through my speaker. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to make sure our technicals were going good. Um, yeah, and I agree. And he's in a tough place too, right? I mean, we know that, that uh, the Romans have sent Pontius Pilate there. By the time Jesus uh, is older, we know that they sent Pontius Pilate there. Why? Because the Jews are rebelling. Herod's not in an easy place. He's definitely still under the control of the Romans, he's definitely, uh, I, don't, I don't know the, the proper word to say it, but he's not fully Jewish, right? So he's a little bit um, compromised there, if you will. But this should still be the moment that the nation of Israel is waiting for. It's, it, I find it so similar, just because maybe we're in the study that we're in with... Uh, with my sermon series and how we just went from Egypt, the people are crying out. They want deliverance. Here it is. They're in, they're in slavery. They want deliverance. They get it. And the first thing they do once they get it is start complaining about it. The Jews are in the same place. They're in captivity. They might live in Israel, but they don't really own Israel. Okay? There's a reason they have to go to Pilate to ask to have Jesus crucified. They're not in control. So here was their chance. Even by what they believed. Even by what they believed being that the kingdom would be physical and not spiritual. But even then, even still, for the betterment of the people, the kingdom of Israel was against the Messiah. Right from birth. Right from birth. Okay? So, I don't want to get caught too much in that right now because... I'm going to tell you, we got lots of stuff that we're going to go through that if you want a question, you're going to have plenty. I promise. So he didn't know that the prophecy was there, which, by the way, I just want to show you. That's Micah 5, 2, uh, before I read it. Um, it was there uh, long before, long before uh, this time. It was, uh, Micah was in the divided kingdoms right at the beginning. Okay. So, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, verse 6, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again, lots of prophecy about the, the Messiah being the shepherd. Um, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring, him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Why 
would Herod want to know when the star appeared? He wants to know how old the child is. Yeah, or how far along he might be through conception, right? He's definitely trying to figure out at least when did the star appear? When was the child born or when was the child conceived? At the very least, he's going to have it limited down to a nine-month period. Okay? You got something? Oh, okay. Sorry. Thought you wanted to bring a comment in there. So, very interesting. He meets. He wants to know the time. Okay. Now, if you look for a prophecy of a star specifically that was going to announce the Messiah, will you find one? Will you find one? I'll give you a hint. If it's not in these three passages up here, you're not going to find one. You're not going to find one. You could say that the number is 24, verse 17. You could say that that was a prophecy. In fact, many people do say that that was a prophecy. But let's read these real quick because I want to show you that, one, the wise men had knowledge because they were reading and studying the Scriptures. They knew the Scriptures well. And we're going to find out that they knew the Scriptures extremely well and they knew exactly not only when Jesus, they had it figured out not only when Jesus was supposed to be born, but they had it figured out before, long before Israel exactly who Jesus was supposed to be. Okay? So, first of all, Genesis 1.14. I don't know if you're familiar with these scriptures or not, but I think they're very interesting. Um, and we could get into a lot of conversation about that, too. Genesis 1.14 says, And God said, Let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So the, so the stars, according to, according to the scriptures, right at the beginning... Part of why they were placed in the sky was, it's like a clock. Right? We know that now. We know that even more so now than they've known for thousands of years. But the, the, the stars are like a clock. They're also used for signs. So it makes sense that if the Messiah is being born, maybe there could be a sign. And it would make sense that if people were studying the skies and they saw something different, something they weren't expecting, and they were looking for Jesus, they could assume that this was a sign. Numbers 24, which is the one that many people think was a, is a prophecy for uh, the star, says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush, crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of sheep. And then Jeremiah 10 says, Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed as the signs of the heavens, at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. In other words, another easy way to translate that scripture is, Hey, don't become like the world. Don't take on the ways of the world. The world's not going to like when the signs of Jesus come. The world's not going to like when the signs of God come because with that comes judgment of the world. Okay? So, I just want to make it really clear that if you were a good scholar of the scriptures, with very little knowledge even, with very little knowledge, you could at least find a reason to believe when you see an anomaly in the sky that it is a sign from God and you better start figuring out what's going on. 
Again, I want to point out to you, the wise men, they didn't come in and they say, are you guys expecting anything? They set out on a long journey, probably months before they ever reached Israel, expecting to find something. What they give us is the star. But could they have possibly known the date? Is it possible that they knew roughly the time? Do the scriptures ever indicate to us in the Old Testament roughly the time that Jesus would come to earth? You see, something very interesting about the Messiah being born in the second coming of Christ is there's actually lots of clues in the Old Testament about when the Messiah would be born. But the scriptures make it very clear that no one will know the time in which Jesus returns, except for God the Father. Right? So, what happened in the history of the Bible where we might be able to pinpoint where some people from a far off land not only knew the time of Jesus, but were expecting Jesus when basically Israel wasn't really looking for Jesus? When, when Jesus walks in on the scene into Israel, Israel's not in a good place. Spiritually, they're not in a good place. If you don't believe me, read how he addresses them himself. He doesn't praise them for their faithfulness. Okay? So how could, how could they have known? I, have, I do have a guess. And I think it makes a lot of logical sense and I hope you can uh, follow me and hear me out through it. Okay? How could they have known? Daniel chapter 9 is where I believe the actual time of Jesus Christ and his birth is announced to the world. Okay? What else is very interesting about Daniel and Daniel, the, the, when he was a prophet during, during his time as a prophet, Daniel actually served under two of the biggest cultures in ancient times. He served personally two different kings, two different specific kingdoms, I should say, of the ancient cultures. The first one was Babylon, right? We find out in the beginning he's under Nebuchadnezzar. Towards, towards the uh, middle of Daniel, what do we find out? We find out that the Persians have come in, they've taken over, And now, he's under the Persians. Some people say it's Darius. Other people say it's Cyrus. Some people say it's Darius, and Darius is Cyrus. Some people say all kinds of stuff. The reality is, both were Persian kings, being Darius and Cyrus. And, and Nebuchadnezzar was Babylon, and we know that that all happens during this time. So think about that from the standpoint of, a lot of ancient culture could have found out about the truths of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, during these, this time. So it's very interesting to me that the scriptures talk most specifically about that time during the prophecy of Daniel, during Daniel's life as a prophet. Don't forget, too, Daniel had the attention of the leaders of the countries who held them in captivity. The leaders of the countries, 
they didn't want to kill Daniel. They actually had respect for Daniel. You can find that all through this time too. So it's not like he was just somebody that nobody listened to, including the Israelites. Okay? This is somebody that had a lot of people's attention. This is somebody that went through the lion's den. This is somebody whose friends went through the fiery furnace. People saw miracles of God happen through Daniel and his friends. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, I just want to point that out before we get into this. Because this is where the theory comes in. But I think when we look at this, it's really interesting. And again, I want you to see, one, that this was written hundreds of years. Hundreds of years before Jesus. Okay? Hundreds of years before Jesus. In fact, about 460 years potentially before Jesus, if my theory is correct. All right. So Daniel 9.24 says this. I just wanted to lay that out there because this is, to me, this is the meat. This is the whole meat of the lesson. You know, Verse, Daniel laid that out a couple of times. He did. With the statue. He did. And the stone not made with hands that Daniel won. destroyed the statue. Yeah. The last kingdom. Depending on your interpretation, but it, it very clearly says the top one is the Babylonian kingdom. Yeah. The second one is the Median Persians. The third one would be the Greeks. The fourth one would be the Romans. And then the Romans as it expanded. It doesn't talk about a kingdom after that that's worldly. That's it only true. It talks about the eternal kingdom. Mm -hmm. And who's the, and the stone that knocks over the, stone the statue precious, is clearly. Precious, is all the worldly kingdoms. Yeah. And it's, to me, that, well, to me, I'll say it this way. To me, the stone that actually hits the statue and causes it to crumble, to me, that's Jesus being the rock. And then the mountain that comes from that rock is the church. Yeah, the kingdom of God. Yeah. So, interesting that you said it that way. I'd like to talk to you more in detail about that in the future. Um, but it's not for this class. Uh, <laughs> okay, so let me read this part because I think it's going to make more specific sense. Now, understand that when we're dealing with prophecy, just like in Revelation or anywhere else, there is obviously a code that has to be cracked, just like in any good riddle, there's a code that has to be cracked before you can start to see it. And in fact, I believe a lot of prophecy is written where it's very easy to crack the code after the event has happened. It's very easy to understand it through the scriptures with hindsight, but foresight is very difficult, okay? So, Daniel 9, verse 24 says this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgressions, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Okay, first of all, I put all that in red because to me that is all fulfilled through Jesus, right? To put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet. So to fulfill the prophecies and the, to fulfill the visions and to anoint a most holy place. In other words, what happened with Jesus is the, the holy place left the physical temple and became the spiritual temple, okay? So you can see all those things very clearly uh, are talking about Jesus. All right, so verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming in of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Okay, 
So you got to look at the top and look at the bottom. All right? And then you got to look at the middle. <laughs> All right? First marker that Daniel gives us is that there's going to be a time. Now understand, Jerusalem is destroyed at this time. Okay? The city of Jerusalem is not built. The temple is not rebuilt. The walls are not rebuilt. That stuff starts happening with Nehemiah. We get all the way to Nehemiah. Okay? So that's where the marker starts. From Nehemiah. From that moment where Jerusalem, where uh, Israel gets to go back home, where the Jews get to go back home and start rebuilding their city and their temple. Okay. Rebuilding Jerusalem. The 70 weeks and the 7 weeks. What's very interesting about this, and this is a guess. Again, I, I don't have any real way of proving this except for looking through history. Okay? If you take 70 times 7, what do you get? You get 490. If you make that years, it's very interesting that you will find about if you take, well, let me say it this way, if you take 30 years off of that 490, you get right to the time where people believe Jesus was born. Okay? So if you take 30 years off of that 490, you get right to the time where people believe Jesus was born. If you add 30 years to that 490, you get right to the time where people believe Jesus' ministry started three years later, his death. Okay? Why is all that important? Well, I believe that's why they knew. That's why these wise men who came from the east knew. And I actually believe that Daniel was probably one of the people who had a major influence in this specific group of people and their family and their culture that kept them searching. They had seen, their family had seen miracles of God, and they held on to those, despite being in faraway lands from what was the people of God at the time, being Israel, okay? And I find that very interesting that it could have happened at this time. So they do their own math, they start figuring out the time, and they see, okay, we had 490 years from the time of Nehemiah, here it is, we're running into that time, boom, star, let's go figure out if this is it, okay? So... How could they have gotten there? 1 Samuel uh, Before you go on, uh -huh. is there a reason why you dropped the last part of chat, verse 25? Yeah, I'm going to go back to it. Okay. Here, by the way. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. No, you're okay. So, 1 Samuel chapter 2 says that Jesus, this is a prophecy about Jesus, and it says that he will be a priest. Okay? Now this is important for the math when you get to the 490 and how they take off the 30, and that's all I'm really trying to show you in this moment. So they already know that this man that's going to be the Messiah is going to be a priest. Okay? They also know that in Numbers chapter 4, and you can find this multiple times in Numbers 4, where they're talking about the priests of the Levites and their name and all the individual clans of the priests of the Levites, and they're numbering the priests just to, to, to get their numbers, okay? It says this multiple times. It says that the priests didn't start their duties until they were 30. 
and they finish them when they're 50. So if you think you have the time in which Jesus is supposed to die, then you can roughly estimate that it's at least going to be roughly around 30 years from there uh, that he would be born. Or his ministry would start, I should say. Not that he would die. Because again, you have the three years in the ministry. Have I lost everybody yet? Okay, good. Good. Sometimes I get really excited about the numbers and sometimes not everybody else does. Okay? So I just wanted to make sure. All right. So again, they're there. They figured this out. And they know. They know. They're looking for him. They've seen the star. They believe that's part of the prophecy. They've got the numbers from Daniel. They believe that's part of the prophecy. And they believe they haven't figured out. That's my guess. This is just a guess. But interesting to think about. This is why I think that they're right. This is why I think that this theory is right. It's the second part of Daniel that makes me think that this theory is exactly right. Okay? So, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end shall come with the flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolation are, desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for a half a week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on, one, on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate unto, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, does that part sound like Jesus? I don't think it is. I don't think that Jesus would come on the wing of abominations. Do you? So there's going to be this abomination. It's going to leave Jerusalem desolate, right? And it's going to happen roughly 62 weeks in a week and a half after the death of Jesus. That's how I read it. Maybe I'm wrong, but think about this. Some of you are already probably ahead of me because you know your history well. Matthew 24. We're all familiar with this passage, right? This is probably a passage you've read multiple times trying to figure out some of the secrets of God because there are secrets of God in it. Matthew 24 is where Jesus talks about the end of times, his second coming. It's one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, one of the most highly debated passages in all the Bible because a lot of different theory comes from this passage. I want to show you where he starts. It says he just left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. See the connection to the abomination of desolation yet? He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem and how it's going to be destroyed. 
Not just destroyed, completely destroyed to where not even one brick will be left upon itself. What's it say when you scroll a little further down? It says, so when you see the abomination of desolation, he's talking about, in my opinion, he's talking about that time period. Now, you can say it's a near and a far, which I would totally agree with. Because most prophecies are near and far. Okay? So you can say this is specifically talking about the end of times too, which I couldn't disagree with because Jesus was definitely talking about the end of times in Matthew 24. But I want you to look at this specifically. So when you see the abomination of des desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, well, which one is he talking about? I believe that's what we just read in chapter 9 of Daniel. Standing in the holy place. And then it, this, whenever you see something in parentheses, it means that uh, it, it's not found in all the original text, okay? So whoever this was that put this in there obviously thought it was really important for us to discern this, this thing that Jesus is saying, not to get it confused with maybe everything else that was going on in the context of Matthew 24, okay? So he says, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is Jesus talking about something that is coming specifically for Jerusalem. Those of you who are good in your history, when was Jerusalem destroyed after Jesus? Yeah, about 70 years after Jesus. Think about... 70 AD. Right, so think about, think about that. Now, you could say, Matt, you're off by a couple years in your theory. That's fine. We could argue over the, 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 the history of the world over a couple of years. And I can find people who agree with me on multiple things. Okay? There are lots of people out there, especially in the Christian faith, who believe that the history that we have been given is altered by a few years. In other words, it's not accurate by a few years uh, the way the Bible would lay it out. I'm not going to get into that too deep either, especially not tonight. All right? But I do think it's very interesting that you see these things. Because we know the history that happened after this, and we can see the prophecy in Daniel 9 that Jesus is specifically talking about with this abomination of desolation. Okay? So, with that being said, if the week means a year, and we got to the 49, now, now down to the 460, then we have this moment here. Okay? Just something to think about. Just something to think about. What I want you to understand, though, and what, the whole point of this is that these men who were far off held the scriptures, believed in the scriptures, studied the scriptures in such fervency that they knew. They knew that the signs that they were seeing in the heavens aligned with the proph prophecy of Daniel. And they wanted to go see the king. They came to celebrate. Why did they go to the king? Do you think the wise men didn't know the prophecy of Jesus being born in Bethlehem? If the Israelites and the, and the Jews who weren't paying attention to the scriptures by the time Jesus is born and weren't waiting for the announcement of the Messiah, which was prophesied all the way back in Daniel 9, if they, if they knew, where it was supposed to come from. You don't think the men who just traveled from, from afar knew? 
Then they, he went to, they went to Herod because they're expecting him. Of course Herod didn't know. This was the Messiah. This was the king. This was the redemption of Israel. This was the return. But that isn't what they found. Is there any questions about any of that before we move on? I know that's a lot. We can go over it in detail at another time, too. If you don't understand anything that I said, it's okay. Like I said before, it's just theory. Any questions? Okay. We're going to keep moving along. Is it possible that they knew part of the, part of the prophecy and they didn't know about Bethlehem? I think it's possible... Anything when it comes to the wise men, honestly, is possible. Um, that they knew part, but certainly, certainly something made them go there. And if it was only the star, why were they looking for the Messiah? Well, they, they knew, from what I understand about Magi, they studied the stars. Sure, they, they looked for things in the heaven. And this is something they never seen before, they've never seen it recorded anywhere, and something like a star is a major event. They knew it was something really, really significant. How much they knew about the scriptures, since they were in the east, whether they were in Media, whether they were in Persia, but they were somewhere in the east, I don't know. Mm. But if they knew a little bit of something, if they knew a lot of something, but certainly when that star was there, that they said, that star's not supposed to be there. That's, that's something like we've never, ever seen again mm -hmm. before. And it means something. To them, who studied the stars, it was big. It's a big deal. And so I think that probably was what really touched off things for them, was they said, we saw a star. There's power there. There's yeah. something there. We I'll need to go find out what, what it is. Yeah. We need to be prepared when we get there, which was bringing stuff. Yeah, so I agree, I will, I agree. Um, but I think they went to Israel. Well, they went to where the star was. Right, but they went to Israel looking for the specific Messiah, for the son of the promise, okay? And that's clear in their statement to Herod, all right? So I think the star is confirmation of what they probably believed based on, in my opinion, Daniel 9. I think it's actually pretty clear. One, one thing you have to remember, too, is all throughout the Old Testament, God lists times. This is going to happen after so many generations. Mm -hmm. the, the, Israel's going to be in Egypt so many years, and it, it went right to the day. Mm -hmm. Everything is, there's so many things that when you look at it, God does talk about time, and he's always accurate about it. He's always accurate, I agree. So to say that, that, that they were studying it, the, the clues were probably there. Yeah, I, I, I think it's pretty clear, and I think the second half of the story, which we know, and we've probably thought about even a little bit more, proves that it's very clear that they knew exactly who they were looking for. Um... So let's go ahead and get into that real quick. Is there any other questions? I don't want to pass if anybody else got anything else they want to say. I think that's 
You're right on with that. Okay. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 9 says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So there was also something significant about the literal placement of the star in the sky and where Jesus was at the time that the, um, the Magi get there. Now I also will say, if you study the scriptures, you'll understand that that probably wasn't the same day the shepherds show up. That's probably not. They, could, they might not even be in the manger at this point in time. They might not, okay? But that star is still there, and it's still obviously indicating where Jesus is at. Okay? All right? When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Okay, so before we get into the, to the other stuff... Who warned them? God. So is it possible that God's the one who told them at the beginning, see that star, go figure out what that's all about. Maybe on the journey they figured some things out. Like I said, when it comes to the wise men, there's really, it's really a lot of just theory. It, it really is. It really is. Okay, I'll keep it down. I get excited. <laughs> go ahead. You notice... Yeah. He's not, he's not in a barn. That's true. That's true. I, I, I actually agree with that interpretation very much. Well, that it goes along when you're going to get, get to it with Herod that killed all the children that were two years or younger. So there, there's been a pretty good time lag. That's right, because we know Herod has an idea of when that star came up and has that in his brain too, yeah. which is why I pointed that out. And if you wouldn't have just said that, I definitely wouldn't have reinforced that. So thank you. <laughs> Uh, very true. Okay. So God, I agree also that God is probably the one who warned them not to go back to Herod. They had their weird feelings when they left, the scriptures say, but God actually tells them, don't, don't go back. And then he tells Joseph, go to Egypt, right? Okay. And then the three gifts they bring, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, most of us probably know that these are not gifts by random chance. I guess you could say that they were. Okay? But it's very easy, if you study the scriptures, the significance of each of these three items. First of all, when you think of gold, what do you think of? You think of a king, right? Who wears a gold crown? Who sits on a golden throne? Who's got the gold? How much gold do you have compared to the United States right now? Who's got all the gold in the country? You or the, or the United States? The rulers, right? Okay. What about frankincense? What would frankincense symbolize? Anybody know? How about the priests? Frankincense was literally one of the things they were told to use in the Old Testament. By name. What about myrrh? Myrrh is a good smelling spice that they put on dead people. That's what it is. So I want you to think about these men who came from a faraway land following a star, 
asking for the Messiah when they get there, and they already have specific gifts in their hands. Okay? Now, one of the things I wanted to do before we end tonight, and I want to do this part quick because uh, I'm definitely going to get too far on my time here, but I want to show you scriptures in the Old Testament that would have been written before Daniel. So these could have been scriptures that if Daniel was sharing things with certain people, certain even powerful people, certain rich families, let's say, if he was sharing that with people during the time of Babylonia, if he was sharing that with people during the time of Persia, that this could have easily been spread and they could have easily had their hands on even potentially some of the scrolls, some of their own scrolls from the Old Testament. Okay? So, God for a king, Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9. All right? For to us a child is born, and, and yes, Isaiah is before Daniel. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end. That's what Herod was afraid of. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So they knew that this coming Messiah was supposed to be a king. Daniel 7, imagine that, finding it in Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. What did Jesus call himself? Son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. For his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. What about a priest? Oh, we got a comment? We have a comment. Um, Mike O'Neill says, just a comment. In other places in the first and second chapters... The messages are delivered by an angel in a dream to Joseph. Perhaps that is how God delivered the message in a dream to the Magi as well. And that is definitely a possibility. It is definitely a possibility. I can't deny that, especially when you know that, as far as I'm concerned, Scripture says God or, or a messenger from God told him not to go back to Herod. So there's something about, that, about these men. Um, so how about the priests? Psalm 110.4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews says that Jesus was this priest in the order of Melchizedek. What's so significant about Melchizedek? He's Gentile. What's so specific about these men from Far East? They're probably Gentiles too, right? Wouldn't that be easy to assume? Interesting points, too, there. What? Melchizedek and Jesus was king and priest. Okay, now wait, you're getting ahead of me. <laughs> you're getting ahead of me, but you are 100% right. Zechariah 6.13 combines the two. The prophecy about Jesus is combined, where he's not just priest, he's also king. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall between, be between them both. In other words, the kingdom and the, priest, and the priesthood. Okay? And last but not least, why'd they bring the myrrh? 
Isaiah 53. I mean, do we need to read it? It's probably one of the most important passages in all of the Old Testament. It describes Jesus uh, in his death in multiple specific ways. Um, I'm just going to read this part, and then uh, the lesson is pretty much yours for the night. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 2, says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And, he was esteemed, and, he, and we esteemed him not. Surely, has, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And for those who might not know the scripture uh, of Isaiah 53 well enough, just in case... You thought, well, that just could mean somebody was going to get beat up. It indicates that he was going to be put to death uh, in verse 12. So, to me, there's a pretty good indication that these men knew their scriptures and knew what they were looking for and even had it pinned down to a time frame. And I think that's very interesting considering that we really don't know much about them at all. They're not even named. We don't even know how many there were. We assume that there was three because there was three gifts. But the scriptures actually never tell us how many. Just a simple side note to a small part of the birth of Jesus. Is there any questions, comments, or anything anybody wants to discuss before we close this out tonight? Good to go. All right. Thanks for coming.